0: Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for COVID-19 Conversations powered by Rust Rehabilitation. I'm Jonathan Whiteson, the Vice Chair for Clinical Operations at Rust Rehabilitation and the Medical Director for Cardiac and Pulmonary Rehab here at Rust Rehabilitation. Today's topic will be cardiac and pulmonary management and rehabilitation of patients recovering from COVID-19 virus. We have a group of faculty and staff battling the pandemic on the front lines of the epicenter of New York City who will discuss important questions submitted by you and your colleagues from around the country. We're about to share our experience in a situation that remains very fluid. Treatments and actions we have taken to date may change as we and others gain additional experience and as such, should not be regarded as treatment guidelines. We, hate to, we hope to make your work and patient care a little easier for you by sharing our journey. Our panel today includes Sophia Prillick, who is Clinical Director of Cardiac and Pulmonary Rehab. Hi Sophia. Hi. John Corcoran is the Site Director for Rehabilitation Therapy Services and a Clinical Assistant Professor here at Rusk. Hello John.
1: Thanks for having me, Jonathan
0: and Greg Sweeney is the program manager of Cardiopulmonary Rehabilitation. Hi, Greg.
2: Hi, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's great to have you all here and discussing, and for our listeners, I want you to know that this team really is the heart and soul of our Cardiac and Pulmonary Rehabilitation program and have years of knowledge and experience in this field and have applied it to the world of uh, COVID-19 patient recovery. We're going to talk through the continuum of care of our patients from our experience. And we're going to start in the intensive care unit. And John, I'd like to open up the conversation with you if I can, because you have a lot of experience working with patients in the intensive care unit and uh, patients who are ventilated and on ECMO. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your experience uh, with COVID 19 patients in the intensive care unit. What have you noticed?
1: We've noticed uh, the sheer volume of patients in the ICU has been incredible. Over the last few weeks and months, uh, hundreds of patients have come through. What's really uh, striked me is the length of stay. We're used to seeing patients in the ICU on ventilators, maybe on average four or five days, And we're seeing patients that are ventilated sometimes for two weeks or more. And that evolves specific challenges that we've had to adapt to. What can we do with these patients to prevent them from getting post ICU syndrome, from getting delirium, from getting polyneuropathy, from getting ICU required weakness has been our biggest challenge and also the coagulation uh, challenges that we've seen we, we know COVID-19 affects every system of the body, so we have to attack in a therapy way to combat this enemy.
0: Well, there's no doubt that the patients have been spending a long period of time uh, in the intensive care unit and a long period of time ventilated as well. Two to three weeks is not unusual for the kind of disease that we're seeing, and many patients uh, have remained ventilated for that period of time. Talk to us about this concept of proning? uh, Because it's been used a lot in our uh, medical center and the outcomes seem to be very positive in terms of the benefit to the patient. Talk to us a little bit about what proning means and how does the rehab team get involved with that? We were doing proning before COVID-19,
1: but it was something that oftentimes would be the nurse in some patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome in the ICU. And now the volumes have gone up so much One thing we've seen with COVID is that it almost always affects both lungs. Only a few patients we've had in one lung. And what we've done with proning is as the elective surgeries have ramped down, uh, we've been partnering with anesthesiology, OR nurses too, as their caseloads have gone down and we focused uh, almost exclusively on COVID for a period of time. So we'll have an anesthesiologist at the airway, we'll have an OR nurse, An ICU nurse who knows that patient oftentimes a physical therapist and then could even be a physical therapist from outpatient We time proning, which is basically putting somebody on their stomach sounds very easy, but it's it's a procedure and a procedure, not without risks. Timing when the last time the patient had a tube feed which lines tubes and drains. We can temporarily uh, shut off move them into the prone position. The prone position we found has been extremely helpful because of the types of edema and infiltrates that these patients are getting massive amounts, often in both lungs. When we have that team of people, it often takes four, uh, five, sometimes six practitioners to move these patients into prone. And at that point, gravity will move the stomach contents forward The good thing with that is that there's more surface area on the back of the lungs. So as gravity moves the stomach contents forward, it often will take this edema and infiltrates forward with it. And then we're getting better ventilation in most patients in both lungs. We keep them in this position for long periods of time, sometimes 16 to 20 hours, which is an enormous amount of time to improve that ventilation. So then we're really looking at their skin and their musculoskeletal system, because if you're in that period of time uh, for that many patients, uh, it's aeration, of course, but everything else comes into play, too.
0: Well, there's no doubt there's been a tremendous benefit from proning, and we'll talk about this in, in a little while. We've also extended the proning program onto the medical floors and even into the rehab floor as well. I'd like to bring Dr. Prillik into the conversation as well. Sophia You consult on a lot of patients uh, throughout the hospital and uh, have have been very active in the intensive care unit. And working with our cardiologists and our intensivists and our surgeons, a lot of patients have been on uh, ECMO uh, in terms of a circulatory support system. And you, I know, have been involved with the mobilization of patients uh, who are on ECMO uh, in discussion with many of our physicians, including our transplant team as well. And, and this is a role that the physiatrist uh, and certainly the physiatrist here, you yourself, has become more and more involved with. Talk to us a little bit about early mobilization in the intensive care unit and the the value of mobilizing patients who may be on ECMO.
3: Sure. So as John mentioned, this this is probably these are the kind of patients that are the sickest patients in the hospital and probably the sickest that I have ever seen in my career. These are patients with multiple comorbidities. Uh, they, are, they have multiple lines in place. They have tubes, uh, sometimes NG tubes. And as you mentioned, you know, tracheostomies, they're connected to the ventilator. They have ECMOs. ECMO is an um, otherwise known as extracorporeal membrane oxygenator. So essentially it's sort of like a bypass outside the body, which takes venous blood and it oxygenates it and puts it back in. For the patient, and that's done in conjunction with uh, ventilator support, um, usually to maximize oxygen saturation, oxygen delivery to the patient. So these patients are sick, and um, you know, mobilizing them is so important. It's it's even more important than for you know a regular respiratory failure patient. In not only to prevent thromboembolism, but also to prevent any sort of cognitive issues and impairments and other complications, skin complications and so on. So mobilization is done early. So therapists, very skilled therapists, actually, very experienced, they keep an eye on parameters that are available with the ECMO uh, as, well, as well as the ventilator. They look at the patient's somnolence, uh, uh, level of arousal. They look at vital signs. They look at the ventilatory parameters and the CO2 levels and so on and so forth. And when a patient is awake and the patient is able to follow commands, they are mobilized. So they're mobilized in bed. Bed mobility is what they work on. They try to get them out of bed. And as John mentioned, you know, just like for proning, for ECMO patients, in order to mobilize them, you need a team of sometimes six, seven practitioners, and usually it involves anesthesiology and respiratory therapy and PT and OT, sometimes a physiatrist and, you know, nurses, of course. So it's, it's a team effort. But by doing that, um, these patients are able to uh, lessen the burden of all these risks of clot forming and, and cognitive deficits and, you know, atelectasis and all, you know, all these other complications. So So it's very, very important. And being done, it makes a difference. And I think we see that difference once these patients come off ECMO eventually, which they do, thankfully. It's just a good, good practice, I think, to start so as early as possible.
0: There's no doubt that we have a, a very progressive intensive care unit program, not just from our uh, surgeons and intensivists, but from our rehabilitation team, from our physiatrist on the floor there yourself, And it really has made a difference. Uh, NYU has a tremendous experience with ECMO uh, in COVID-19 patients, and the outcomes have been very, very positive. And the rehabilitation team has played a significant role there. And progression from the intensive care unit to the acute medical floors is what we expect for our patients. And Greg, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now as well, because what we're dealing with, with many of our patients with COVID-19, is an acute respiratory distress, uh, uh, acute respiratory disease syndrome, ARDS. And we know that this is a restrictive lung disorder. We know that there are infiltrates and oxygenation is a real and critical issue for these patients. And I think in the rehabilitation world, and for many of our listeners, people who are listening to this review Uh, this might be the first time that they're dealing with patients so critically sick and with such oxygen needs. So talk to us a little bit, Greg, I know you have tremendous experience through your pulmonary rehab and cardiac rehab career. Talk to us about oxygenation. How do we monitor oxygen? How do we titrate oxygen, not just at rest, but to get the right levels when patients are mobilizing?
2: This is a really good question. I think one of the bigger challenges we're seeing with the uh, COVID-19 population, as been said earlier, there's many systems involved in this uh, this very challenging disease uh, or virus, but uh, specific to uh, the lungs, uh, what we're seeing is some significant impairment. And, and what is pretty alarming or striking is how quickly patients can deteriorate. And so uh, what we've been trying to do is identify patients early on that um, potentially are showing signs of distress with their respiratory system and try and work with them to try and slow that breathing rate down, try and calm their breathing to try and improve oxygenation so that we can potentially prevent you know, further deterioration or complications. So Specifically, in terms of the oxygenation, it's a really big challenge because we're not necessarily used to working with oxygen rates that we're working with with these patients. So, you know, generally most people are comfortable with nasal cannulas or you know maybe a face mask. And what we're seeing is that these patients require a lot more oxygen. So, we're seeing them on high flow nasal cannula, perhaps a non rebreather at maximum FIO2s, and sometimes in combination. And so, um, you know, it's a lot to uh, deal with. I know Dr. Pralik had mentioned this is some of the sickest patients she's seen, and I would echo that. I I also agree. But uh, what we can see is that over time, I think we are seeing some improvements and and being able to monitor these patients uh, and really look for signs of either they're regressing or progressing in terms of their respiratory status. And so using things like, we know these patients are going to present with uh, tachycardia and tachypnea, so using your SpO2 monitor and, you know, certain markers to identify which direction your patient is potentially going. And I think we have to be comfortable with providing uh, significant amounts of oxygen as patients move through our continuum of care. So in the acute care area, um, we're seeing, again, like I said, a high-flow nasal cannula with non-rebreathers. As they start to improve, we can decrease that down, perhaps using Venturi masks with very precise amount of oxygen, um, all the way down to nasal cannulas. And as they move through the continuum of care, uh, looking into inpatient rehab or even the outpatient area, I think we have to be comfortable with the fact that these patients are going to need oxygen and we need to provide it for them so that they can perform the activities we're asking them to do. And again, it's a very, very de- deleterious um, pathological presentation we're seeing here. And we know time is a factor, but we can make a difference with pacing and the right oxygen delivery system.
0: There's no doubt, Greg, that we need to move these patients. Uh, We need to get them up. We need to get them walking. We've talked a lot about the debility that comes from prolonged ICU stays, the ICU neuropathies and myopathies that we're seeing in these patients. Uh, So we have to move them. When you're looking at oxygen, and I think this is a common question that that we get from our residents and we get from our colleagues both here at NYU and around the country, and that is, what oxygenation level, what um, O2 sat are we looking for? What's an acceptable level? Uh, and as well, you you know, let's talk about parameters for blood pressure and pulse. So so, what's acceptable in terms of O2 sat? pulse, and blood pressure while we're mobilizing patients? So I
2: can take the O2 sat one and then uh, let uh, someone else add to to the other questions. But specifically for O2 saturations, I think, you know, unfortunately, we have to go back and think about the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And basically what we're trying to do is ensure that we have enough oxygen being delivered to the body, essentially our muscles, our brain, our heart, all the the major areas that need that oxygen. And so we know that the pressures that are required to maintain that are at certain parameters. And so if we're looking at a pulse oximeter or, um, you know, markers that are giving us an SpO2, you know, ideally we're looking for 94% or higher. Uh, In this population, we're not going to see that. So we're happy with, you know, patients are, maintaining saturations over 90. And again, when you extrapolate that over again, it's about the driving pressures to get the oxygen to actually make it into the to the tissues. And so that's why that number is so important. The challenge is though, there will be times that these patients are not able to maintain that as we push them, as the supply and demand is, is not able to be maintained, they will desaturate. And I think that's where we need to uh, know how to back off and allow them to recover with cues for breathing and pacing. Uh, so it's, it is a, a, it's a challenge uh, to work with this patient, but I don't think we, we change our norms. You know Our expectations are SpO2 should be above 94%. Ideally, um, we'll, we'll accept 90%, but as they start to drop below that, that's giving us an indication that you know we should take the foot off the pedal.
0: Right. Slow the patient down, pace the patient, get them to do some deep breathing, because once they go below 88%, we know they're on the steep slope of that oxygen dissociation curve and they can become quite hypoxic, and the partial pressure of oxygen drops quite rapidly. Sophia, let's, let's address the, uh, the heart rate and the blood pressure uh, issues. Um, sure. you know, from your experience in cardiopulmonary rehabilitation, how do we interpret tachycardia, and what should we be concerned about in terms of uh, blood pressure in these patients with COVID-19?
3: So again, these patients are people that have been on bed rest, uh, ventilated, ECMO, with all these uh, complications possibly. And uh, so we expect them to start moving with somewhat of a higher heart rate than a uh, you know regular match, uh, age-matched control. So I would expect a patient like that to be slightly tachycardic, probably somewhat above 100 beats per minute. On top of that, as we all know, COVID patients are at risk for developing thromboembolism. So of course, we can be somewhat relaxed about, you know, uh, slight tachycardia, but at the same time, be on the lookout for thromboembolic phenomena uh, such as um, DVT or pulmonary embolism. So again, if, you know, we do expect, but at the same time, we're cautious, um, you know, low threshold to suspect a DVT, for example, in these patients or pulmonary embolism. Um, also, in terms of blood pressure, they will probably be orthostatic to begin with. You know, they have a lot of, uh, support, pressure support when they are intubated and then when they are on pressors, possibly when they're in a state of, um, you know, shock. Um, When they come off and they start mobilizing, we see some um, uh, postural changes where their blood pressure drops. So I wouldn't expect their blood pressure to be extremely high. Um, You know, on the other hand, these are some of the patients have uh, underlying hypertension. And uh their usual medications may not be given because of the orthostatic changes. So if they're of their usual beta blocker or if they're of their usual A- usual ARB or whatnot, you know, we would expect corresponding changes in the heart rate and blood pressure. So um we we have we have to be cautious, we have to be on the lookout for uh complications. At the same time, we need to be understanding um of the fact that these are debilitated patients and they will have parameters that are somewhat off compared to regular individuals.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I completely agree with uh, both you and Greg. And, and it's always good to look at the patient. It's always good not just to look at the numbers, the oxygen stat, the pulse, the blood pressure, look at the patient. And has the patient had a change in clinical status? Because you're gonna see heart rates in the 120s. You're gonna see blood pressures high and low. You're gonna see oxygen levels low and we're trying to drive them high, but does the patient look stable? Is the patient maintaining as they were before you started therapy? Does the patient look like they're going to faint or pass out? In the context of a normal-looking patient, I think we can accept sort of more broad parameters in terms of uh, blood pressure, pulse, and oxygen level. But if the patient doesn't look good, that's the time when we really need to pay attention. And I think that's part of the experience and the ability to just to step back, look at the whole patient, not just the numbers when you're trying to make a decision. John, as, as we sort of try to conclude out the acute medical flaws, again, the, the proning program, uh, you've extended it into the acute medical flaws. What, what have you seen? What have you understood? Is this proning position helpful for people as they leave the ICU as well into the acute medical flaws?
1: It is, and and I'm glad you asked that, because the the ICU program is actually 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It goes nonstop. It has been going nonstop. And we're seeing those patients come out of the ICU, which is really exciting. And as Sophia mentioned, some of the patients coming off cannulation and off ECMO are having very nice successes. So on the acute care floor, we did uh, several weeks ago a pilot, and Greg was one of the first people to jump in. So at night in the acute care floor, people who come in through the ED and are admitted to acute care or people who come out of the ICU, from around nine at night till 11, we partner with nursing. And I thought it would be a lot easier to be honest because these patients are for the most part not vented, for the most part participatory. But um, if you haven't been in prone in 15, 20 years, it's hard to get a patient even when they're not sedated into prone position. Our early wins were people who said they slept in prone. So we would just educate them on the benefits, talk about why they go into prone and why it helps them to say, Oh, you wouldn't have told me I would have went that way anywhere when uh, lights went out. So those patients were very easy, but some of them were very nervous about going into the prone position. What helped us though was the oxygen saturation. Some of them, a lot of them, they'd come in at 88. And we know that's kind of a dangerous point. Uh, when we got them into the sideline or full prone, a lot of them went right up to 94. So we saw immediate changes and they felt better too. So that we get an instant win there. Not all of them. And Greg, will say this, cause he was one of the first people up there that night. And some of them went into coughing fits and actually desaturated. So we brought them back. Some of it was anxiety, some of it too, musculoskeletal. Can your cervical spine handle that when you're turning? And how anxious do they get? So the combination of education with nursing, with the patients, with the therapists, with physiatry, it's a team approach. And for the right patient, the saturations have improved. And we feel like we're actually keeping some patients who weren't in the ICU to, to begin with, came into the ED to acute care. We're keeping some patients out of the ICU with proning and other rehabilitation
0: techniques in acute care. Again, truly underscoring the value of a rehabilitation team, not just a rehabilitation team that sees its role in on the inpatient rehabilitation floor, but really from ICU, acute medical floors, the rehabilitation floor, outpatient office, the continuum of care, it's so, so vital. So let's move into the rehabilitation setting, the inpatient rehabilitation setting, or should I say, let's try to move there? Because Sophia, I want to bring you back into the conversation again as well, because it's, it's a decision, isn't it? How do we know patients are ready to move into the inpatient rehab? So what, what are the things that you're looking for when you're admitting a patient onto inpatient rehab, who's been through the ICU, who's been through the acute medical floors? When's the right time? What are you looking for?
3: So the decision is multifactorial, I would say. So we have to take into consideration their medical course, their current state, their ability, functional abilities, their performance with bedside therapy. Uh, They usually get PT, OT, and speech therapy at bedside. So we definitely look at that performance and see how nicely they're progressing. So in general, compared to our usual uh, workflow for acute inpatient rehab screening, we actually uh, look at these patients understanding that their medical complexities do require the acute level care. So, you know, namely acute inpatient rehab. So they may not be mobilizing as well or as independent as some of their counterparts without COVID, but at the same time, we know that they would benefit from a program like that. So we take that into consideration as well. We look at the family support. So I'll give a couple of examples. So an example would be someone that had a relatively uncomplicated COVID course, you know, maybe with a little tracheobronchitis, perhaps pneumonia, a little fever, you know, they spent perhaps up to 10 days in the hospital, they did well, and uh, they're now ambulating perhaps 100 feet and relatively independently at supervision level. And they have a nice family who is currently at home. And they have uh, very easy access, maybe two steps to enter. So there's really not that much of a barrier. Uh, they may or may not need oxygen on discharge, you know, but otherwise they have good support. They're able to ambulate and we're relatively confident that we'll do okay at home. At the same time, someone who spent a prolonged course of three weeks in the ICU, for example, intubated on ECMO, uh, maybe complications, perhaps a DVT, maybe they have a, you know, neuropathy with a foot drop, and even if they have family support, the family is just unable to care for them at this particular moment. We know they will at some point with the right care, with the right therapy, the patient will hopefully mobilize and be able to get to a more independent level. So these are the kind of people that we want to bring into uh, the acute inpatient rehab. So while we watch their medical course, you know, could hopefully continue to improve, and carefully monitor monitor their parameters, labs, uh, chest x-ray, close follow-up with an internal medicine team, perhaps a pulmonary team, and at the same time, we educate the family on, you know, how to take care of them, and also administer interdisciplinary uh, rehab program to these patients. So that would be a, a patient for acute inpatient rehab. So I guess to summarize, our criteria, we still try to follow the usual acute inpatient rehab criteria, which is being able to tolerate three hours of therapy, and, you know, be able to go home eventually. However, you know, we need to take into consideration things like social barriers and medical barriers and access to care and requirement for oxygen and risk for deterioration. So all of this is, you know, goes into the decision.
0: I mean, it's, it's clearly a complex decision and your skill and expertise in knowing these patients, not just from now, but from the past as well, really makes a difference. But also that it's a multidisciplinary decision as well. And I know you take a lot of guidance and, in, and input from the rehabilitation team, the therapists and the medical teams as well. And I think it's also important to point out to our listeners that, you know, with the relaxation of some of Medicare guidelines, not all of our patients have to tolerate the three hours in acute rehab. There is some wiggle room, that if they're a little more debilitated and they can't tolerate the full three hours, then that's still acceptable, certainly during this time. Now, we have a few minutes left, and then we're going to be wrapping up our current conversation. Greg, could you describe to us a little bit about what patients are going through, what the multidisciplinary input looks like for patients getting pulmonary rehab on the inpatient rehabilitation floor?
2: Absolutely. I think this is a good opportunity to just uh, give a quick shout out to our rehabilitation team, our physiatrist, our physical therapist, occupational therapist, and speech and language team, because they have been unbelievable. They've been the most heroic group of people jumping in to help these patients. And uh, maybe to paint that picture again, you know, we're talking about uh, patients that, you know, have gone through quite a bit, and we have two extremes in terms of patients that you know, uh, maybe had a moderate to severe case of of COVID versus the patient that had a critical case of COVID. So two very different pictures in terms of how these patients present. So, you know, the more moderate to severe, you know, they had a a difficult course, but maybe not all the complications that come along with uh, the critical illness component. And so generally these patients seem to be doing a little bit better uh, and they move through the system, you know, fairly fluidly they still have their needs, they're still gonna need re, uh, oxygen therapy and other components. But uh, through a balance of, of therapy services, they seem to do well. I think the critical group is, is the one that we're really um, challenged with right now. As this wave of patients came through, you know, we saw a huge influx of patients hit the health system. And you know, ultimately, over time, we've been able to decant the system to a certain degree, and what's left is these critically ill patients, and I think they're very, very difficult to uh, to work with. And so, you know, just to take a moment, uh, patients that have been ventilated, uh, perhaps trach. So, speech and language has been instrumental in terms of caring for these patients, occupational therapy, and dealing with the you know the components of delirium that these patients face. On top of uh, speech, helping with those components, physical therapy, working with the myopathy, the neuropathy, all the other components that are going with the complicated lung function. So, you know, in the end, you, you know, you're you're really left with a patient that you know almost presents like a very very severe debility patient that you you know superimpose an ARDS or a very bad uh, pulmonary component too. So it's a very challenging group to work with, and I think. We really do need to use our full continuum of care to to really manage these patients. I think as these patients move through the critical component of their recovery, they're going to need more intensive therapy to overcome some of the challenges that they've faced. And so I think there will be an increase in, in a need for inpatient rehab for these patients, Right now, we're still in kind of our early phases of beginning to talk about what an outpatient continuum could potentially look like for pulmonary rehab for these patients. But bottom line is they are uh, tolerating, you know, the therapies well. They do respond to the breathing exercises. They are going to need more pacing and energy conservation to allow them to recover. Uh, Oxygen will be a slow titration. So expect that, and uh, you know, again, I think one of the things, don't be afraid to give your patient the oxygen they need so they can participate in the therapies, and that'll help us you know, move these patients through the continuum. But you know, I think we, we've, got, we've accomplished a lot, but have a long road ahead as well.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt that the incredible work that's being done through the continuum of care from the ICU to the acute medical floors to the inpatient floor, and as you said, Greg, and we're not there yet, we're sort of six weeks into this pandemic, We're not there yet in terms of opening up our outpatient centers. We're doing a lot of virtual visits in the outpatient setting for the physiatrist to see their patients. I've started to see patients discharged from the acute rehabilitation floors uh, who were there with COVID pneumonia and ARDS, and we're starting to work on a rehabilitation program for them. So Uh, In future conversations, uh, COVID-19 conversations, we will discuss outpatient programs and certainly outpatient pulmonary rehabilitation. It is going to be a significant need for these patients. And we're gonna discuss the full complexity uh, of the rehabilitation program in the outpatient setting and a tremendous opportunity for our colleagues around the country to prepare uh, to provide the best possible rehabilitation care for their patients not just through the continuum that we've discussed, but into the outpatient setting and to get these patients back to a full quality of life, which is the role of any rehabilitation program. I would like to thank our panelists for their time and for going above and beyond the call of duty in battling the COVID pandemic. Their expertise is significant. Again, I'd like to thank Sophia Prillick, John Corcoran, and Greg Sweeney for discussing this complex situation, but showing that there is absolute opportunity to help our patients regain their strength. For our participants, if you have additional questions, please email us rusk.info at nyulangone.org. And please put COVID in the subject line and we'll try to answer your emails within one to two days. Look out for the next installation of COVID-19 Conversations powered by Rusk Revoltation, And stay safe. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nylangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter
3: at Rusk Podcast.